This idea that government is beholden to the people, that it has no other source of power except the sovereign people, is still the newest and the most unique idea in all the long history of man's relation to man. I think that we have a core set of values that are enshrined in our Constitution, in our body of law, that are exceptional. What our framers debated that, that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787. Our Constitution begins with the word, we the people of the United States. That is what it means to say that we have a government of laws and not of men. Welcome back to Constitutional Conventions, the official podcast of the Yale Law School Federalist Society. My name is Jonathan Feld, and I'm joined by our host, Zach Austin. And we are here for what is a very, very exciting, but also a very sad episode, because it's the last episode of our first season here. But we're very excited to be joined by a really esteemed guest, Bridge Colby, uh, continuing the proud tradition of, of foreign policy scholars and, and intellectuals who are joining the show. So we're really glad to have you, Bridge. Thank you. Great to be here. It's also my last episode. Uh, it turns out that my term as Yale FedSoc president has ended this week, and I'm very grateful to the incoming board for letting me out of the stable one last time to take us on this journey together. For those of you who don't know, Bridge has written a really wonderful new book called The Strategy of Denial, and it's a great book in grand strategy and a path forward for U.S. foreign policy. Bridge Colby served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development, in which capacity he was responsible for defense strategy, force development, and strategic analysis for OSD policy. And during 2017 and 2018, he was a key player in formulating the National Defense Strategy, uh, released in 2018, and focuses on the department's major power competition capabilities moving forward in the future. Before that, he worked at the Center for New American Security as the Robert M. Gates Senior Fellow, and has done a number of really important roles in the war on terror, especially as it relates to Iraq and the President's WMD Commission, et cetera. Uh, really, really couldn't have it, almost a more experienced guy on the show to talk through some of the major developments in American foreign policy over the last few months. So, so we're really glad to have you. Th thanks a lot. That, the other translation is I couldn't keep a job. I've had a lot of them, so. <laughs> you know, Bridge, I, I guess, you know, maybe, maybe the best way to open up this conversation is just tell us how you see the field. We've read your book, and I'm sure a lot of listeners have, but not everybody has. So maybe just a, a brief blurb on what strategy denial is, what you were trying to achieve, and where you see the state of play as it regards to American grand strategy right now. Sure, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I just think briefly, I mean, I'm just very concerned that the country and our foreign policy in particular, sort of our foreign policy decision-making, you know, elite, if you will, I kind of dislike the term, but just to be empirical about it, is not grappling with the reality of the world in which we now find ourselves. And that's a world in which you know, the term uh, you know, I kind of stole from the, the economists is scarcity. We don't have the power and the superabundance of power and resources to kind of smother all of the problems and threats we might face as we might have hoped in the 1990s or 2000s, rightly or wrongly, it was at least a reasonable contention during what was called the period of unipolarity. But you know we're way beyond that, and of course China's the biggest reason why you know the rise of China. Uh, but there's also a lot of other things. I mean, of course Russia is still a threat, clearly, or you know depending on how you look at it. But there's also North Korea, Iran, terrorism. You could go down the list: Venezuela, Cuba, Ecuador, you know, et cetera, right? And you know in that kind of context, you know I think we need a strategy, and I'm a believer in a strategy. And a strategy, in my view, is not a sort of clever plan. It's basically like a logical framework 
for making optimal decisions under conditions of scarcity and uncertainty. And in that context, that's what I tried to offer in this book, because a lot of our foreign policy, I think, has gotten lost the bubble, as the pilots say, over the last generations, got really carried away and kind of hubristic or, you know, lost that finger feel of a kind of, you know, realism is a fraught term, but I mean, basically realism in the kind of colloquial sense. And I wanted to try to bring that back and also bring a strategy, particularly in, in the context of war and peace, which is a, of a special gravity because it matters, you know, life and death in large numbers. And so this is an argument really for, you know, it's a book about China, but it's really a book about our strategy and China's the biggest problem and the biggest threat to our interests, China dominating the world's largest market area. And so my argument is we really need to f focus first and foremost on that. Doesn't mean the rest of the world isn't important, but it means we need to grapple with the reality of our scarce resources and you know look to others to do more where they can and support them where we can, but also be more selective and I would say strategic and intelligent in the application of our power than we have been over the last generation. That's, that's what I tried to lay out in this book. That one thing about the book and maybe that I took from my uh, law school education, I, I tried not to be sort of a series of assertions or a kind of hortatory or rhetorical style, but rather a kind of a, a logical argument that carries it through. And you can see my work and people might disagree. In fact, I think people could argue against some of my own policy preferences based on, on the logic I lay out. And I, I'm prepared to concede that I might have been wrong on some of them or might be wrong. But that's, that's the, that was the idea of the book in, in writing it. Bridge, on that point, one of the themes that stuck out to me is that good strategies involve scarcity, as you said, and sort of trading off resources. So I think we've had a really interesting case study in the form of the Russian invasion of Ukraine that sort of demonstrates something that might have been on our radar in the 1990s, but we might think about differently now, especially through the paradigm you lay out. So, you know, with this happening at the same time as the release of your book, how do you think it sort of proves or disproves the paradigm you set up? Well, actually, I think if anything, it supports our ability to focus more on China. Actually, in the book, I, I think of it, I, I countenance an even worse outcome, which was a Russian invasion of NATO and a potentially partially successful Russian invasion of NATO. And I advise that we still focus on Asia. My, my preferred strategy is a more, you know, a ne by necessity, a more limited American contribution to NATO. I think we should remain in NATO. I think NATO is very important. Europe's important. But it has to, we have to genuinely prioritize Asia. And the Europeans are totally capable of making a much larger contribution to their own security they have in the past. They've got the wealth to do it. And in fact, we're seeing that now. So actually, if anything, what's happened is the Russians have, and I don't discount the Russians, but I, if anything, they've proved themselves to be less of a threat than certainly I thought. I mean, they've underperformed what I anticipated. So I've been surprised by that. And the Ukrainians have stood up. And then the Europeans are stepping up, finally, as they should. I mean, it's a tragedy that it took the invasion of Ukraine for them to do so, or some of them like the Germans to do so. But okay, that's what's happened. So there, at, the, at the sort of theater level, there's more, you know, there's a, there's a strategy for doing, you know, a less active and, and dominant American role. So I actually don't really understand the argument for doubling down in Europe because it doesn't make any sense. You know, there's more basis for us not to have to do so. Moreover, I actually think the invasion confirms a couple of my key arguments. One is, you know, if a country builds up a military to try to force an, you know, neighboring countries to do what it wants, it's probably not going to be able to do that by soft power or gray zone or influence, and it's ultimately going to try to invade them. Now, the Russians failed, but they actually they actually demonstrate that if you really want to coerce somebody, you've got to seize and hold their territory, and the Ukrainians blunted their ability to do so. Moreover, the key thing the Ukrainians did, it's not sanctions, it's not G7 condemnations, not the EU or whatever, it's the fact that the Ukrainians have denied the Russians, their, the ability to seize and hold their territory. Now, it wasn't Americans, which is actually great uh, from our point of view, but the Ukrainians denied the Russian ability. So I think that's that's another that, that's sort of the key key point as well. 
One of the things that you point out in the book is that America's primary focus ought to be China as it regards to combating grand strategy. But you mentioned that this, as you just alluded to, there is a, a worry that Russia may start interceding in Eastern NATO. And so I guess the question as it relates to kind of how you differentiate yourselves from other conservative, some would call themselves neoconservative foreign policy thinkers, is there seems to be a line in the sand somewhere, somewhere between Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, that that would require some kind of more serious or, or physical American involvement than we're currently at. And I guess the question for you is, where is that line, would you say, roughly speaking? Is, is it just once NATO gets involved, America ought to step up and do more? Is that where, where the grand strategy kind of calculus changes a little bit? Because as, as you said, the, the current strategy in Ukraine seems to be working fairly effectively as is without that added impetus. Well, I think it's an attack on NATO. I think if there's an attack on NATO, the United States should should you know aid in the defense of NATO from a Russian attack, but it should withhold the forces necessary to ensure victory in a Taiwan scenario. And actually, we're not in that position yet, so we're really in trouble. So we should be prioritizing that. So this is like, you know, we have com- we have more commitments than we can simultaneously meet. So this is not the first time this has happened in World War II. We declared war on, well, they declared war on us, Germany and Japan. And even though Japan attacked us first, we said we have a Europe first strategy because it's the decisive theater. So similarly, I think we should build a military. In fact, what we told the Defense Department in the 2018 National Defense Strategy, told Secretary Mattis told them, it was, you know, focus on major powers, uh, China above all, but also Russia so that we could uh, you know, lessen this, this dichotomy, but that's not where we are. And, and even if we are rigorously disciplined, which we're unlikely to be, uh, we, won't get, we won't solve that problem anytime soon. So look, we can defend, but we can't defend with everything we got. We got to save the most important stuff that we need that is scarce, B-2 bombers, space assets. Well, space might be a little more fungible, but mun- pre- precision munitions. We've seen how fast the Russians have run through their stocks of precision munitions. That would probably happen to us too. And we're seeing the difficulty the defense industrial base has to recapitalize those weapons. So that's the kind of thing. And I mean, you know, the historical example I like to use, neocons love, love Churchill. I love Churchill too. In 1940, 41 or whatever, the British cabinet had limited amount of air power and it basically decided we're going to make sure that we can defend Britain because if we lose in Britain, the whole thing is over and end up exposing Malaya. It helped contribute to the Japanese decision to invade uh, the defeat of British forces in Southeast Asia. But, you know, that was a survivable loss. So I wish we weren't here, but there is a solution, which is more narrow American contribution, but really a a much stronger European effort. And I want to flip a little bit to the Asian theater and talk about that, because that really is the focus of the book. I'm conscious of the fact that the enemy usually gets a vote, and uh, we're not the only ones thinking of our strategies. So what do you think the conversation in Beijing is like right now about what's happened in the Russia-Ukraine war? I mean, you've said earlier in the show that it increases the odds of a potential Taiwan invasion. Do you not think they're scared that some of their training or doctrine or equipment isn't up to the task? Well, I'm not sure that it, it increases the odds of a Taiwan. I, I don't think it uh, obviates it, though. I think they're probably, I mean, I think they're pretty fixed on solving the Taiwan issue to their satisfaction. And that's a personal thing for Xi Jinping, but I also think it's a matter of state policy. It has been for many years. It's widely probably supported within the Chinese populace. So I think we should kind of take it as a given that they're not just going to give up on it. I think there are a lot of reasons for caution, which I think are pretty intuitive, like, hey, maybe this fancy new concept of operations that the PLA has rolled out isn't, quite, isn't gonna work quite as well as, as is sold in the Central Military Commission. So yes, they're gonna, I'm, if I were advising Xi Jinping, I'd say like, do a bunch more cycles to make sure that 
this concept and you know joint you know operations and everybody's really up to snuff and this money I saw on Twitter some one of this guy just got uh, I think uh, Russian Intel guy just got put in jail because he siphoned off a ton of money that was supposed to go to some Russian Arctic project to like you know Adachas in in Crimea so like you know I'm sh- I'm sure there's that stuff happening in China too right so yes totally true but what I would take from I mean a couple things Ukraine and Taiwan are very different situations much more vulnerable. The, the biggest thing Taiwan has going for it from a military perspective is 100 miles of water, which Ukraine doesn't have. But other than that, it's in trouble because it's a lot smaller, it's a lot closer to China than it is to our allies. It's very difficult to resupply, unlike Ukraine. A lot of questions about the fighting spirit of the people. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I'm not one to lecture on that, but just empirically. And I think the big takeaway, if, if I were in China, is don't mess around. Like, you just, like, totally smother the place. And if you were previously thinking of sending two missiles or two helicopters, send four, you know, and like you'd be really sure. And don't assume that Tsai Ing-wen's government's going to fall apart. You make sure it falls apart. You know, that's the, that's the, but we'll see. I mean, I, I, I think this is a very dynamic situation. Not to, to harp on Churchill too much because we, Zach and I do have a proclivity for doing it, but it sounds like the advice is the classic Churchill quote, never maltreat the enemy by halves. If you're the Chinese, you come with shock and awe, and yeah, you take you know, the Republic one. of like China, yeah. uh, or, or, or you know, Taiwan, as most people call it, and, and you make sure that it, that it falls quickly, and, and, and that's the end of it. You, know, you just did an event with the Vandenberg Coalition that I was listening to, and it was a really wonderful event, Dr. Amanda Rothschild. And I think you made the point, I, I may be mistaken, but that, that if Taiwan should fall, that itself would not be disastrous to U.S. aspirations for for East Asia more generally, and I guess you wrote in the book, you know, always always have a backup plan as just a prudential thing at all. So, assuming that Taiwan were to fall and it were to to be invaded by the Chinese and fall quickly, slowly, you know, I'm, I'm asking you the question, so I'll let you kind of deal with the the merits of the hypothetical. But but what does U.S. foreign policy and grand strategy in East Asia look like post post hoc? Well, I think it would be a disaster, but I don't think it would be the end of the story. I mean, I, I, I'm not, if I said that it's not, I mean, I think it would be a disaster because there's, there's very little strategic, there's essentially no strategic depth in Asia, um, whereas there's significant strategic depth in Europe. I mean, the Russians are being stopped at Ukraine, which isn't even in NATO, let alone, I mean, you know, I mean, NATO is much larger than a balancing coalition would be necessary. And I think, as you know, I go into this in the book, like it's much larger than it's strictly necessary from our strategic point of view. There are other arguments why you could expand it and so forth. But, but in, in Asia, where it's skin of our teeth kind of situation. And, you know, if Taiwan were to fall, there would be a major blow to our credibility. And I, I think, as you know, I have a narrower vision of credibility than many people, but it is real. But also it's, it's immediately proximate to our most important ally, which is Japan, not to mention the Philippines, which is also significant from a uh, geographic point of view. And Chinese would have essentially uninhibited access in the Central Pacific, et cetera. So it would be very bad. What, I mean, I think, as you know, in the book, I actually think about what the possi- you know, what, how we might react to this situation. I mean, the analogy I use, and there's probably a better one, but to continue the British examples, is the East of Suez decision by the British in 1967, where there for financial reasons, you know, for many, I think, generations, basically, the British had been the sort of protectors, you know, sort of uh, you know, suzerains, if you will, of the Gulf monarchies. And, you know, they were, the Gulf monarchies relied on them. But then from one day to the next, the British were like, we can't afford it anymore. And that left the Gulf monarchies very exposed. Now, the Americans were basically around ultimately to, to pick up the slack, which would not be the case. But, you know, if we lose Taiwan, I mean, 
you're going to have, I mean, Chinese forces are already operating in the vicinity of, of Japan. And it's going to be a very, very grave situation. And there are going to be a lot of countries which will have very good reason to wonder whether the Americans actually are credible. I mean, that's, that's not crazy. That, that's actually rational. You know, I mean, I, one of the things I used, I took from law school was just like the reasonable man idea. I, I kind of love the reasonable man idea because it's sort of like, it's so, you know, it's just sort of circular. I, I mean, you know, it's a lot of its precedent, just kind of common sense, but it's sort of, okay, you know, would it be crazy to think that if, you know, if you're sitting in Manila and the Americans don't defend Taiwan, I mean, what would you think? I mean, I think you would be pretty reasonable to think, geez, I, <laughs> I'd like to not live under Chinese domination, but I really don't want to suffer the consequences. And so that's the, that's the kind of logic. So I think, I think, you know, that's one of the things that people are just unappreciating is, is our, you think that I'm for tough choices. We'll just wait until we lose Taiwan and ev- we got to drop everything else. You know, everybody's pet project in the Middle East or whatever, Europe, whatever, is gone from one day to the next. And that's, I don't, that's not good. So we should anticipate it and have it be more uh, smooth. I mean, I think it sounds like there are, what you're saying is there are serious consequences to drawing lines in the sand, kind of like we did in Syria, except that in Syria, we, we let it slide and we didn't really act on, on, you know, Obama didn't act on as he promised he would. Whereas here, we've staked a lot of political capital on the protection of, you know, of uh, Taiwan, the Republic of China, who has, you know, quasi-ally status, right? I, mean, I think that the U.S. Has, has basically done everything that it would otherwise do to say that we would. And, and if Taiwan isn't defended or isn't supported in a way that seems like the U.S. is doing the best that it possi- plausibly could, yeah, you, w- you would see a lot of problems with, you know, Thailand, Cambodia, and especially the Philippines and Australia and Japan, all of whom kind of look to America to, uh, as a counterweight, as, as I think you put it, a kind of count- a centerpiece, a counterbalance, a cornerstone of that anti-hegemonic movement in, in East Asia against Chinese aggression. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, look, I mean, not, I, I didn't think we should get in Syria in any case, really, but, you know, the president made the, the commitment. But, I mean, wasn't that big of a deal at the end of the day, because mostly these commitments are largely contextual. You know, they're about, you know, what does Syria tell, well, if you're, if you're sitting in Saudi or Turkey, it's more, or Iraq, it's more significant than if you're halfway around the world. But, so the Middle East is ultimately not as, nearly as important. Asia's really important. So, you know, it matters there. And I guess I want to build on that. You know, one thing we see around the halls of Yale Law School is that there hasn't been a lot of attention paid to these issues in a long time. I think that is starting to change now. You know, we just got an email saying there's going to be a course next year on the war in Ukraine. And we've seen an uptick in extracurricular events and classes relating to executive power and, you know, national security-related subjects. But one of the things that has me worried is there's just not a lot of consciousness about these issues in, you know, this intellectual elite you described. And what can be done to change that? I mean, do you think it's going to take an invasion of Taiwan and maybe us losing before it comes about? Or ideally, there's, is there something we could do before that happens to make people understand the issue? Well, I mean, I think this is a, a big part of kind of what I'm trying to do, my sort of, I guess, intellectual policy projects. is I, I think a lot of this has to do with you know, still being under the spell or even drunk with kind of unipolarity and this manifests itself differently on on right and left, but it's basically, I would say, a, a dismissal of the importance of power and relative power and a sort of an assumption that we will have sufficient power 
to impose our will one way or the other along, you know, in the left, it might have more to do with the like-minded countries of Western Europe or what have you, and through international institutions that, that they might, you know, hold up. And on the right, it might be kind of unilateral or whatever, but it's, it's the same basic idea. And a lot of what I'm trying to do is, you know, we need to get back to understanding the very basic, and it, in some ways it's always been, you know, especially in the American foreign policy discussion, I mean, going back, you know, decades and decades, it's, it's been, it's been foreign. I would say Yale actually traditionally did have, I mean, more of an appreciation. I mean, Michael Reisman, I think, is teaching is a wonderful uh, scholar and example. I, I really enjoyed studying under him, that sort of Myers McDougall school. But on the whole, it is, it has been in some sense a minority tradition. Although, you know, my view is it's actually very American and consistent with our our political tradition because the core. I think Bill Barr actually said it pretty memorably. I know it's probably not the first one, but the core of the American constitutional system is not the Bill of Rights. It's the, it's the separation of powers. And uh, so there's an acute understanding and appreciation of power in, in the domestic context. But I mean, I think there's a strong tendency to, you know, think that that's something that we shouldn't have to think about abroad. But, it, you know, we're living, I mean, for the first time, certainly in our lives, but really, I mean, the first time in the United States as an, as an active international actor, we have a country that's as powerful as we are, which is China. I mean, roughly speaking, order of magnitude. This very, it's just a fundamentally really, really different situation. And it's uh, something we fundamentally need to grapple with. Bridge, when you when you mentioned Michael Reisman, who asked had the chance to study under I Wrote a Saw, um, you are speaking a little bit about your past experiences and how they intersect with the work you're doing now. One of the things that I think is really interesting about your career is that you've had kind of two bites at the apple for strategy making. One, in the Pentagon, working on the national defense strategy. And now your most recent book, sort of doing it on your own for a more general audience. How do you think the writing style and the argumentation differs in both of those approaches? Oh, interesting. Um, Well, I mean, it's interesting. I, some people sometimes say I'm the author of the National Defense Strategy of 2018. I was not the author of the 2018 National Defense Strategy. There was a very talented army colonel who, I mean, there were, it was a team of of people who sort of wrote it out. But the key thing was to have it be something that sounded like, uh, the guy's name was Buzz Phillips, by the way, I should give him public credit uh, as much as possible, or happily. But I think the the idea was to have it sound like Secretary Mattis. So to me, the the, the, the key elements of that kind of a document are are the ideas right, you know? So, I mean, that was the, my focus, was making sure the idea, the right concepts and ideas were in the document and then selling it and, and explaining it, right? So that's the critical thing in a bureaucracy because the point... What it sounds like is sort of immaterial. The, the 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 important thing is to get the right ideas and have them, un, you know, processed. I remember during the process, I remember an Air Force general, a really sharp guy, uh, Jack Shanahan. He's an AI specialist. He said, you know, I think it was Jack. He said, you know, it's good. I I, I always liked the strategy, but but now it sounds it's sounding more and more like like Jim Mattis. So people are going to actually listen to it, right? So that's the effect that you want to you want to have. And the cost of that, of course, is you know, lose control and you have to uh, make settlements, but that's life in, in a hierarchical organization where you're not the top boss. I mean, as Bob Gates, I think, used to say, everybody's staff in the, in the, in the government, even the Secretary of Defense. So, so that's the, that, that to me is like, I mean, and, and, and to me, a, a, an effective strategy, honestly, it's kind of as short as possible. It's keep it simple, stupid. Um, and I think we achieved that in the, in the National Defense Strategy. The ideas were basically right. There are things that I would want to do a little bit differently. But on the whole, I would say 85%, which is, you know, by government standards, I think is, I have a lot to be, to be, to feel fortunate about that we were able to achieve even that or that. Whereas a book is different. I mean, a book is like every word, you know, that the, the purpose of that is to pr- provide, I and mean, my aspiration is to provide as loose and clear and comprehensive an exposition 
as possible and to walk, walk people through. And, and actually, you know, a lot of, I, I have this debate with some friends of mine from, from government and foreign policy world and they, you know, somebody say, oh, you know, you're, 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 you're making too fine distinctions. You're, you're, you're making things, you know, separated that don't need to be, that can be aligned. And my view is, look, in government, that's where you make the deal. If you're sitting in the situation room or if you're making a deal in the Congress, you can fudge it there. But the, the value for the country and our political leadership and so forth and the people who influence them is to have the ideas as clear as possible. So take the, the, you know, the point about ideology, for instance. I often make the argument that, it, that the fundamental stakes of our competition with China are not ideological and that we need to be careful not to construe the competition as overly ideological. Now, that's not the same as saying ideology isn't important or an arena of competition or something we can use in the competition. That's all consistent with my argument. But I want to be clear about that. One of the things that comes out, I think, about your career and about your trajectory and, and everything that you've done so far is the way in which it hasn't followed the traditional path of students that go to law school. I think that's fair to say. I'll note for the record that you're smiling a little bit because you recognize that's that's <laughs> oh, very that's true. Sure. Yeah, and, and I guess you know, fortunately, I think it's it's a reality of many students at Yale Law School that they're able to do that kind of thing. And and you know, reading through the acknowledgments of your book, which is which is one of the most revealing places of, of any book, uh, you you thanked you know Professor Gewertz, who was the small group professor, both me and Zach. And it just shows I think that there there are a lot of folks at Yale Law School that are interested in things like foreign policy, like our relations with China, and I guess. The, the question for, for Zach and I, maybe less so Zach and more so me, because Zach is on his way out and I'm, I'm still here. How do you navigate or how did you navigate law school knowing or suspecting that you may not want to be interested uh, you know, as a litigator or, or going into big law, for example? And how did you gear your education to kind of maximize the opportunities here? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I should caveat it by saying I'm not sure I would advise my approach to people in general in the sense that maybe I made the best <laughs> Maybe I tried to make lemonade out of lemons in the sense that I went to law school thinking that I might practice. I didn't go, you know, thinking uh, I'm not going to practice. It's but I, I just I did never found it very interesting. I remember I remember listening to my first semester. What was it? Uh, not civil procedure, although that too, but uh, contracts, and just like it's like staring at the ceiling and being like, "Jeez, man, like this is really, you know." And and what I what I decided basically was that I should, just personally, I'm best doing what I am motivated to do. And you know, if I'm good at something, it's, it's something that I'm motivated to do, right? This is what I do. So I'd already started working on it. I was passionate about it. I was working part-time at a couple of things. Like I did some work at the Rand Corporation. I ended up working on a congressional commission part-time. So I was active. I started writing on my own. I, I actually kind of self-educated in deterrence theory at law school. I wasn't really reading my civil procedure very carefully, frankly. So don't ask me. My main legal advice is don't don't ask me for legal advice. But you know, is but I you know I, I made use of the time. And the wonderful thing about Yale Law School, and I have different political views than probably you know the vast majority of the people affiliated with the institution. But is they were very encouraging about that. And there was no, and there was, you know, I was like definitely not looking to clerk. I wasn't looking to get on any journal that was important. And and I just kind of owned it, you know. And I think there's there's uh there's a root. So mine mine is kind of extreme. I mean, there are people that were my contemporaries, who I'm sure you've heard of, who who did closer to the mainstream way. Maybe they clerked, maybe they didn't, and then moved into the foreign policy field. I I see my, you know, it's a bit, it's developed, but I see my, you know, to be a little romantic, my vocation as trying to 
you know, shift American thinking to be more, you know, sort of small R realistic and so forth and strategic about the national security and particularly defense challenges we face. And I'm I'm very motivated and I, I'm very grateful to Yale. Yale gave me an IPA to work on the new start negotiations uh, for the Pentagon, which was a great experience. So I think that's good. I mean, I think, I guess my main advice to people is, I probably had the lowest GPA in my grade. I, 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 I would not be surprised, honestly. I mean, you know, I did okay by, you know, but I, in college, but I was not a 4.0 student. So, so maybe, maybe I was sort of like already selected on the end of the bell curve for this type of personality. So it's easier for me to say, but I think there is a tendency for very talented people who go to Yale Law School then to say like, oh, well, I guess the thing to do is to be this. I guess I got to be in the journal. I got to be in the law. And then you kind of, the, the golden handcuffs problem emerges. I mean, primarily, obviously there's a financial element, but there's also a sort of gold star element. And, and you know, especially if the timing doesn't work out, if your your particular political team is up or your interest area is up, oh, I'm going to go to XY law firm for two years. And then suddenly 10 years later, and you've got three kids and a mortgage and all that stuff. So my my sense is like, you know, I mean, not to be, but I think Yale is, a, is, I do still very much think that Yale is a special place, that people are really interesting and capable, and they have a lot to contribute. So you, you will, you, you're very likely to find something productive to do, so don't feel like you've got to do the, the cursus honorum, as the Romans used to say. And just dovetailing from that, if you look at the median member of our chapter right now, I would say they are very interested in national security and very likely to clerk. You know, most Yale Law students are, on average. And so I, I want to talk a little bit about the other tack. And, we, you know, we interviewed Ambassador John Bolton earlier on the show. And if you read the early part of his bio, it is very much a practicing lawyer, right? Going to big firms, doing this kind of legal work. As we enter sort of an increasing age of specialization, do you think that route is still possible for graduates of this school? Um, I think that's much harder. So let me let me maybe give a message to your chapter, which is, um, and who knows how the future will go. And I mean, speaking as a Republican and a conservative, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty about the future of the party and, and conservatism. And I mean, personally, I find it exciting. And I think there's, I mean, I, I joke, I, I think, <laughs> I compare watching a lot of my dem- Democratic contemporaries, they it feels to me like they're 19th century mandarins. You know, they've learned all of the, it's actually very conservative sociologically. There's a lot of hierarchy. There's a lot of deference. They go through the proper, you know, ablutions or what have you, or, or, you know, processes. Meantime, the Republican party stuff is like, you know, you go in with a couple of your friends, you roll into tombstone and you have a shootout at the OK Corral. I mean, you never know what's going to happen. Right. So exciting, a lot of unpredictability, but what I think is likely if the part of the party that I you know, I'm sympathetic to, which is the more uh, reformist or, you know, I, I don't love the term populist, but it's uh, sometimes described that way or sort of po- populist friendly, common good conservatism. If that if that part of the party is uh, ascendant, then there's going to be a real problem in terms of people who have experience and expertise in kind of manning the the national security state and other elements of the of the you know institutional state. I mean, it's a huge. I mean, you guys know this is a huge administrative state, and you can't just ignore it. I mean, for multiple reasons that are obvious. So, I would just say I think having people who are by by dint of who's been in, in power for the last twelve years, there aren't going to be that many people with a lot of experience. 
So it's more about having people who are skilled, open-minded, smart, hardworking, and I would imagine the Yale Law School Federal Society is going to be a great recruiting ground pressure because you're, you're going to have demonstrated your courage and conviction by being a member of the Federal Society in an era in which is, is increasingly difficult to do so. So kudos to you and my admiration. I would say, to get to your specific question, Zach, I, I think the law and thing is much, much harder. Now, again, don't take it from me. I failed as a lawyer to the extent that I tried. So, but the couple things. One is that the law has become increasingly specialized and competitive and difficult and commercialized. Okay, that's probably familiar to you. The other thing is that the national security foreign policy world has also become increasingly specialized. So even people who are, you know, you guys are younger than I am, but like a generation ahead of me, the Steve Hadleys of the world or Walt Slocum, who's a great thinker and stuff. I mean, some of these, Walt is like a, you know, once in a generation kind of talent. But the, the other thing is you could still straddle a bit where you could, you know, someone like Steve or, or Walt, were like genuine national security professionals and thinkers and lawyers. I just think the think tanks have developed. There's these cadres of people who have the experience. So it's like, why would you go to a law firm and pick out somebody who's been like working 18 hours a day on, you know, oil company contracts for the last six years? And so what you get often is the, if you, if you try to bridge it, you get the worst outcome, which is you're like, an, I mean, with all due respect, national security law, which is kind of a, it sort of falls between two stools because it's, it's not like the high point of the law law, which I don't know. I mean, some people think it's appellate or whatever, I, you know, or big litigation, but it's also not like the national security. Like it's not, you know, it's like when you're thinking strategically, you know, it's not like, oh, I'm checking like with a lawyer every second, right? Like that's, I didn't like, clear my book on defense strategy through like a, a legal expertise, right? I mean, there's going to be legal issues, you know, obviously law of war kind of stuff, but it's sort of, I don't want to say it's peripheral, but it's, it's more on the margin. And so, you know, my, my, I think to do what you can, like if you get a chance to do like a real straight up national security job, do it and then do like some law stuff, but just keep, try to keep your national security stuff you know, uh, active. I mean, I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm just saying I don't see it very often. And I don't think that's a, an accident. Bridge, I, I want to follow up on that with maybe a broader question. You're in the thick of this foreign policy, national security, grand strategy world. How do you see the different factions from left and right and within the right shaping up towards the future? How do you see the different movements coagulating their interests, their goals, their priorities? And where do you put yourself there? You know, I think one of the one of the differences between myself and some of the, you know, most prominent kind of foreign policy Republicans of the last generation is, you know, I think of myself as, well, I am very much in line with a lot of the kind of predominant currents in like the, you know, the new Republican party thinking, like I am a conservative on domestic issues and I'm, I'm interested. My vocation is foreign and defense and security policy. And that's not a partisan activity per se. I mean, obviously it's relevant to partisan activity, I'm not naive, but it's, it's a different model than I would say the sort of quote unquote fusionist model, which is that you had like domestic conservatives, people who wanted to cut taxes and people who like to use violence in international affairs. I'm not necessarily very belligerent. I don't like to be called a hawk or a dove because I think it's contextual. My goals basically, I think, are consistent with conservatism. My basic approach, I think realism and conservatism in the way that I use them are pretty, pretty similar. They're, they're, they're very like almost, almost synonyms. 
And I think that's I think that's different than the model that prevailed, you know, 20 or 30 years ago in the Republican Party. And I think that's a positive development because I I think we need to move away from an idea where the Republicans are always sort of like the more belligerent and hawkish ones to ones where, you know, the Republicans are the party who say, you know, what's in it for us? You know, yes, we want to help people, but, you know, what's the long-term gain for us? And the the left is more the party of foreign policy party of we're going to cure all the world's ills and all that kind of stuff. In a sense, a reversion to probably more like 50 years ago, what what the parties were were like. But I do think it's really important. And this is where I think a Yale Law School experience as a conservative or Republican, and especially participation in the federal society can be very important because it will show, you know, it demonstrates that somebody's like really, you know, committed and active and intellectually engaged in the things that are necessarily more domestic being legal issues. But if they're working in the foreign policy, they're also somebody who kind of gets it and, you know, knows the proper place for things. But, um, you know, I mean, for me, I wouldn't want to just, you know, if it were up to me and I had the spreadsheet of the personnel, I wouldn't just look for specialists in, I, I would look for specialists in, say, nuclear deterrence or space policy. Yes, you need that. But I would also want, you know, people who are demonstrated serious conservatives who've been through the you know, the thick of it in the recent years. I mean, crazy stuff where people are talking about censorship. I mean, surreal, you know. So I think a Yale Law education in that sense is, is actually important for, for, for future conservative leaders, uh, both in the government and out. Well, Bridge, I see we're butting up against our time and uh, I'm waxing poetic here, I guess, because this is my last question on my last podcast episode before I uh, sail off into the horizon and John never sees me again. But you know, I'm conscious of the fact that when I was deciding whether to go to law school or not, you were sort of paired up to be my mentor to talk through the decision. And I wonder with the way that the market has changed and the world has changed, do you still think it's worth going to law school at all if you're a young conservative interested in national security policymaking? Yes, I think it is. I mean, I think I think that, I mean, a legal education, especially the kind of, that Yale has traditionally offered, one that isn't, you know, is more broadly scoped and connected to the, pub- the issues of public policy. I think you've got to have thick skin and courage and conviction to get through the increasingly, probably, I would think it's not unfair to say, suffocating political intellectual environment in the elite institutions today. So, I mean, bravo. But I think, you know, I mean, one of the things that is distinctive about like the rising generation of conservative politicians is many of them have been through these institutions and have come out and are all the more capable and know exactly what it is going to take to push back against the ascendancy of the left and so forth. And that's often more pointed in the domestic space, but it's certainly true in the in the area of, of foreign policy as well. So no, I think, I mean, I, there's no perfect graduate school, I think, you know? I mean, there's sort of, I mean, there's no perfect anything, but I mean, you know, a PhD, sometimes I think maybe I should have gotten a PhD, but then, you know, you could spend like six, seven years, you're working on some very specific thing. You have a relatively narrow range of skills that you come out with in terms of the broader market. You know, business school isn't as intellectual and so forth. It's not as rigorous in, in a lot of ways. With all due respect, my sister went to business school. Um, you know, but but it's sort of, you know, masters are sort of limited. They're more general. Blah, blah. So I think, I mean, I I would go to Yale Law School again happily. You know, I'd bring I'd bring my my you know catcher's equipment to make sure that I you know could could take the you know the bean the beaning that I'm sure you guys take on a regular basis. But you know, that's sort of what it is to be a a conservative in the in the current information or whatever, media and blah, blah, blah environment. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I would do it and uh, look forward to, to continuing to talk with you guys and your successors at, at the Federal Society. Well, from my first conversation with Yale Law School to my last, Bridge, you've been there the whole way. So thank you so much for joining us Thanks, today. Thanks, Zach. Really That's appreciate great. it.
And uh, to all of our listeners, it's been a good run. Uh, you'll be in capable hands with John next year. And uh, the white smoke will soon be going up from the Yale Federalist Society <laughs> chimney to announce my uh, lucky successor.